0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Blue Room. Today is episode six, our final episode of this season of reading along with Hope, a user's manual. The final section of the book is called Hope Beyond Hope, which is a bit of a catch-all, kind of a wrap-up section for the rest of the book. And it's really about how we persevere amid everything or despite everything when we're feeling hopeful, and even when we're not. Today's guest is Tim Beal, Distinguished University Professor, Florence Harkness Professor of Religion, and Director of H Lab at Case Western Reserve University. He is the author of an astonishing 16 books, and today we talk about his latest book with the bracing title, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. I met Tim's spouse, Clover Beale, at a conference last fall, which is where I heard about this book, and I knew it would be the perfect way to cap this season of the pod. The book starts with the question what if it's actually too late? What if it's actually too late to save ourselves from the climate crisis? What then? It's an alarming question on its face, but Tim's exploration of that question is robust and provocative and, ironically, hopeful. Which is exactly where the final section of my book strives to land. Loved this conversation. One quick note, because of some quirks in our schedules, we actually recorded this back in December of 2022, which is why you'll hear a reference to an upcoming series of lectures he was preparing to deliver in January. Also, while this didn't make it into the edited conversation, Tim put together a playlist to go along with the book, which is so brilliant and poignant and playful, and I've included a link to that playlist in the show notes. Anyway, let's get to the conversation. Tell me a little about how this particular book came to be. sounds like it was out of conversations and and courses that you were teaching.
1: Absolutely. The book at the proposal stage when I got the contract with Beacon Press was a book about capitalism. It was sort of about the religious, the, the, the barely hidden religious dimensions of, of capitalism. And there's still some of that in there, in that book, even some pieces from the proposal from way back then, that was uh, 2016. Before that, it was a book about water um, at one point it was a book about rewilding Christianity. Um, you know, it, it went through all these different, these different forms, but once I was under contract, I teach a course every fall called Religion and Ecology. And I started just sharing wherever I was with the book with those students in that class. And we would just spend the last few weeks of the semester looking at this project. And, you know, so in the early, in those early years, it was like looking at possible tables of contents, you know, and how should this be shaped and what should be the kind of arc of it and that kind of thing. And then as I had some drafts of some chapters, you know, together, they, we would look at those together and their feedback and their, and, and, and especially hearing from them, what was really resonating, really pushed this book in a direction that I hadn't entirely expected to go which was to really ask those hard questions around what if it's already too late to avoid Uh, climate crisis and climate collapse maybe it's not but what if it is you know can we have that conversation and you know it it was the students who really pushed me to to be asking that and to explore that question
0: oh so that really came from them
1: and yeah, you know, I'd say so. I mean, I you know, I would hint at it and they would want more.
0: Yeah, I was just talking to to someone else earlier today and we were talking about, as you know, the series that you're a part of and this interview will be a part of is kind of a read along with the book that I wrote about hope. And yeah. we were talking about the generational, different way generations access hope or don't. And my friend and I were talking about how, you know, I have teenage kids, college student and two high school students. And even the topic of hope, it's almost like you're talking a different language with them. Like it's just not a, a virtue that they often access. I'm, I'm curious as a professor, how you talk about that, especially in relation to this topic.
1: Yeah, it's such an important question. And to think about it, generation generationally and culturally you know hope is also culturally specific too Very right in so, all kinds yeah. of ways and when i when i talk to folks my age and older we tend to attach we we tend to connect hope up with perpetuity it's almost like there's no hope except in perpetuity some sort of uh, duration that's beyond a, a, an obvious end in it, it, something beyond that whether it's generational or or, or whatever. And, you know, that's always kind of surprised me when I've gotten that response from from some folks, you know, my age, older, a little bit younger. I find that my students who are basically, you know, Gen Z, they're, they're 18 to 22 right now, think about hope sometimes in other ways that don't have to do with time and duration and foreverness and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of them will say they don't want to have kids. Um, they don't imagine ever having grandkids, not, you know, even if they had kids, they don't, necess- they don't imagine having grandkids because they just don't think of a kind of duration like that for for the world and, or at least for, humans thriving on the planet and they tend to think about hope sometimes in terms of relationship um, in terms of meaning and connection so it's more a kind of uh in the moment sort of experience of hopefulness and I've been reflecting a lot on that myself because I think I'm kind of caught between those two right and I know and I know I know you've written about this in 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 your book and I think we have a we share a lot uh, uh, um, in reflecting around those kinds of questions.
0: Right, right. Yes, I. My perception in talking to people, and I guess I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, Gen X, the the forgotten generation that can sort of, you know, hang out in a multitude of different kinds of rooms. But mm-hmm. my sense from folks, often my age and older is they really they either don't see the validity of that kind of hope that you're describing that's really present based and how are we to be right now you know what is our our moral urgency in responding to the issues before us even if it may not work out as we hope or as we would like it to and they see and, and i think older generations and i'm painting with a really broad brush but like it's their job to instill in young people a sense of hope right and Especially coupled with the complexities of a mental health crisis, I think a lot of people diagnose that as well. The reason why folks are in Gen Z are feeling depression and anxiety is because they they lack hope, and so let's pour that into them, as opposed to well, in some ways, having a lack of of hope that the future will get better is pretty rational (laughs) if you look Mm -hmm. around at the world Mm -hmm. and how messed up things Mm -hmm. are. So. Mm -hmm. curious how you think about that
1: yeah i think i think you're right that um that a lot of folks want to want to do that want to sort of fix that they see we're we're such problem-solving oriented creatures we humans it's very hard for us to think outside of a kind of problem-solving mode to for example try to imagine some other possible way of being in the world which i think actually you know grief and trauma can open up in hopeful ways can create space for and i think that you're right that the climate grief and climate trauma that that a lot of young people are feeling is just an honest response to reality and it's okay to to sit with that we need to care for them but we also need to learn from them right how to do that i'm very influenced by my teacher, Walter Brueggemann, who argued, who has this wonderful book called Reality, Grief, Hope, that uh, is a kind of a simpler version of his prophetic imagination book from, from a long time ago. And he's basically arguing that the kind of prophetic movement, the movement in the biblical prophets is to confront the Solomonic Empire's ideology of Israelite exceptionalism, if you will, with the reality of what's actually happening, with the injustices, with the the harm, and with Babylon coming down the pike and to to confront that ideology with that reality, to confront the denial that follows from that ideology with grief, real grief, that kind of prophetic expression of lament and grief, and to then confront. The empire's inevitable despair when that denial fails them with real hope. And so you can't get to hope without moving through grief, without making space to acknowledge and live and sit with and give voice to grief about the harm that has already happened and is happening and that is going to happen, that already is unfolding into our future before we can get to to hope. And it's not like you do this, then you do this, then you do this. It's not like some stages thing, but these, you know, reality, grief, and hope are are, are all sort of together in this, or they have to be.
0: Yeah. I mean, even the stages of grief were not meant to be stair steps, right. but like spirals, yep. right. That we move within. I mean, yeah, Brueggemann was one of my professors also, and I definitely saw his, I mean, I know you quote him a few times, but his fingerprints and his his uh <laughs> legacy Definitely. was was very much present especially i especially heard his voice in my ears as you were talking about sort of the immortality of vehicles and how mm-hmm. the, the church don't unpack that term a little bit and mm-hmm. i'm i'm gonna look for a there's a particular uh passage in here i want to read and get us to reflect on a little bit what is immortality yeah. vehicles about
1: right So immortality vehicles or immortality projects, I use both of those phrases, it's about the sort of things that we construct in order to deny our mortality as human beings. And I take that from Ernest Becker's book called The Denial of Death, which I actually learned about first from Walter Brueggemann when I was early on working on this book, because he's read everything. And so, of course, he had read that. So Ernest Becker was writing about you know our our individual the, the kind of human denial of, of of individual death and individual mortality and the various immortality vehicles that we build in order to live in denial of our our mortality of our animal like finitude creature like finitude creaturely finitude and he talks about how. That might be war, you know, heroism in war. You die for your country and your God and and your your legacy goes on in that way. Or great works of art, you know, the, 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 the artist who lives beyond their lives through their artworks or through love and believing in this relationship as some sort of transcendent love is stronger than death, as it says in Song of Songs. And and what Ernest Becker's, and of course, religion, right? Heaven, when you die, you don't have to worry about mortality, something like that. But what Ernest Becker says is that all of our immortality vehicles are actually religious, whether there's a God involved or heaven involved or whatever, that, that there's something deeply religious about this denial of death as individuals. And part of what I've tried to do in the book is ask, is there also this kind of denial of death on the species level? Can we talk about our collective immortality projects, our collective immortality vehicles that we think are gonna save us from our finitude as a species? Mm-hmm. Whether we're talking about Elon Musk and SpaceX or whether we're talking about you know just all of the capitalist rhetoric out there right now that we're gonna beat climate change and it's gonna be win-win you know oh, yeah. finan- financially and it's going to create jobs and you know all of that kind of stuff right these are immortality right. vehicles yes and they're keeping us they're keeping us from looking at the reality and grieving that reality right and then finding hope
0: it's it, it occurs to me that this book is so uh, well timed because we're really at this moment right i mean where we've been through so much over the past now 3 years with a pandemic and And you can just feel the inertial forces wanting us to just get back to it. And I'm not ready to leave the grief of what has been lost, what has been uncovered. I mean, not just through the pandemic, but through the previous administration, you know, what, this is the world, right? Um, But I wanted to ask, uh, I wanted to read a little bit here and just get you to expand on it. And I have a particular question about it. On this note of of immortality vehicles and ways we, Bruggemann would probably call them idols, right? Mm -hmm. The ways that we uh, kind of pull the the wool over our own eyes. You wrote, closer to home for me, what if churches and other religious communities were to take seriously our finite human future? In many ways, churches are immortality projects par excellence. Too often their priestly and lay leaders are focused almost exclusively on how to continue as though forever, how to maintain their land and buildings, how to grow their endowments, how to add more parking spots. Who felt seen there. <laughs> this is as true for big growing congregations as it is for those whose member roles have dwindled to a tiny remnant of old faithfuls. They might not even like each other, but they are united in their addiction to perpetuity. And what I love about that paragraph, and I wanted to get you to just respond to it and talk a little more about it, is there's a certain theology that is kind of on the more evangelical side. That's like hope is in the sweet by and by, right? I mean, we're we're right. headed somewhere. There's this eschat- eschatological future. We'll be, you know, all things will be made new in heaven. And I think you and I are are in similar kind of theological waters where that's not really maybe our language. And yet you implicate us so well with that, the endowment, right? The the Mm -hmm. perpetuation of the endowment and the building. So I'm curious, I mean, if you want to talk more about that, but also specifically, have you spoken to churches and done kind of presentations about this book? And and I wonder what the reaction is, uh, not just to that piece, but just to the whole enterprise of what if we are really in the this moment where time is short and what do we do?
1: Yeah. Oh man, it's such a heavy conversation to have. And because we really just just sort of take for granted that it's okay to think and talk that way and have those as our goals. Right. You know, and I honestly, you know, I'm not a minister, I'm married to one, but I'm in a university that thinks the same way. It's all about endowing ourselves for forever Right, and and the the big the big endowment gifts get celebrated. It's going to make it possible to do this forever. That's almost always what they say. Research in this field, or whatever it is, so that it takes a it, it takes some work to even interrupt ourselves around that and and think about you know post <laughs> post Christian institutions. Uh, you know they're not going to go on longer than than we do anyway, and maybe not even that long. <laughs> not even that long. Same with higher education and universities. I have to say, yes, I have had these conversations. Um, several different churches have given some lectures and some adult ed classes and, and things like that. I do a lot of adult ed, adult education teaching, and. Y- 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 that paragraph has, has been, you know, kind of grabbed onto by, by a lot of ministers like saying like, Whoa, that does sound like a session meeting to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) or, or, or a, uh, or an endowment committee meeting to me. And and that's understandable. Right. And, and some have, have really kind of taken it to heart and thought, well, what, how do we, you know, what, what should we be talking about? And for me as a kind of follow-up, in my own thinking to this book, that's the kind of conversation I want to have. I'm not really making any recommendations about that in, in the book, but I I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what is the role of, of the church of churches and of other religious communities on this horizon of climate crisis and possibly climate Collapse. What is what would it look like to be the the Church of the Anthropocene? And I'm going to give some talks at Austin Seminary in January about that. So I'm starting to think about it. But I think that there's something there. There's a role here for us because the larger mainstream culture may even be more optimistic in a shallow way than we want to be. Um, And I know you write a lot about hope versus optimism. I think it's really important. at least historically, religious communities, religious rituals and practices have been the means by which communities have dealt with, with trauma and grief and and death and suffering. We have the language to help people sort of live into those experiences and, and make meaning within those contexts. And we have the rituals for that. And we have the, the, the traditions and the stories for that. And so I feel like There's a role for religious communities around creating space for for grief and for a different kind of hope, a deeper hope, as opposed to the kind of shallow optimism that's out there, deeper and costlier
0: hope, Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm
1: -hmm. to shallow and cheaper optimism. Well, I want
0: to get to your kind of one of the hearts of of what you propose as a, as an alternative and a more life-giving way forward. And I wanted to say just by way of kind of introduction to it, that I did a few years of kind of adjunct work at George Washington Medical School, mm-hmm. and I worked in partnership with a palliative care doctor. And so I was... Mm-hmm reading that section of the book and the 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 sort of what you call the and I think you're quoting someone else the design cues that we can take mm-hmm. in in into this kind of climate crisis that we're in but that palliative care is distinct from hospice care yes they, yes. they often work together right I mean how do you mm-hmm. understand those those and you are very intentional about using that as opposed to hospice right which I think it's right. an interesting move given that you are like well what if this is the end? Mm-hmm. but it really, I think, I think the metaphors of palliative care really serve us well, but if you wanted to talk about Yeah.
1: That. Thank you. Right. I, I think you get it. I, I, sometimes when I say, you know, this is about a kind of palliative approach to the human future, people conjure hospice, like right. crank up the morphine, uh, you know, <laughs> right. calm, calm the nerves and numb the pain and yes. wait for it to be over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an important, that's important. I've, I've been with loved ones going through that. And I, I understand that. The importance of that. But I think palliative care is much more about, you know, when you know time is growing short, you know, how do you want to live your life and how might that change the way you live, Uh, shifting away from quantity of days or years or months to quality of of relationships and of of experience. And for me, that's a, a, a valuable way of thinking about how to have those conversations about a finite human future. So maybe in palliative care, we're talking about months or years or more. And in terms of this conversation, we're talking about decades or generations or more. But nonetheless, there are some what B.J. Miller calls design cues in palliative care that I found really suggestive for thinking about what these conversations might look like if we're thinking about, you know, maybe we have decades, maybe we have a few generations, maybe more. But if if that's the case, then, then what should we be talking about? And so the first design cue is to learn how to accept necessary suffering and alleviate unnecessary suffering. That's also just a very Buddhist sort of approach. Um, but uh, so you know on the one hand learning to 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 deal with the suffering and and to accept and grieve the suffering that has happened that is happening that will inevitably happen not just to humans not just to american or western humans but to the world and to the to the beyond human world as well and to 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 accept to grieve that but then also to work to alleviate Un, what can what is certainly unnecessary suffering? We can allocate our resources differently, and we're, there's some work around that, right? That we saw out of COP 27 and 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 some other things. But there's a lot more work to be done around that, and part of that work is about making those decisions to alleviate suffering, knowing that they will you know make us a little more uncomfortable in the process. So that's one design cue that just strikes me. You know, I think an analogy there, you, you think of a person who maybe has a, a year to go, or that's their prognosis, right? And there's this surgery out there that's incredibly expensive. It's going to break that person's bank and their family's bank. It's going to be incredibly taxing on them. It's going to probably cause a lot of suffering from them, for them going through it and for their loved ones watching them go through it. Um, And it's got a 0.01 percent chance of increasing their life by a month. Right. To me, that's sort of like, you know, Jeff Bezos trying to colonize outer space or Elon Musk trying to, you know, get humans to Mars or something like that. Incredibly expensive all All kinds of costliness in terms of suffering and and uh, and money and everything else, and uh, you know almost no chance of of anything ever coming of it. So that's the first design cue about suffering. The next is is to think about relationships. and you know when someone is 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 facing a finite future, you know, years or or even months, They often want to work on those relationships. They want to repair broken relationships. They want to find forgiveness in their relationships. They want to reconnect. They want to forgive. And to me, again, I see an analogy there on on the species level to the kind of work we should be doing around reparative justice, the work we should be doing around social justice and community justice and environmental justice to to repair these these relationships and and to work on that and to invest our resources and our our time into that and then the third is a is maybe a little more vague when you try to think of it on the on the on the species level but for bj miller it's about attending to the senses he says even if you only have one sense just sight or just touch or just hearing or just smell or taste. It's enough to, to live into the sensual world, the aesthetic world, to not anesthetize oneself from, from the world of the senses and enjoyment and embodiment and fleshiness, back to what we were talking about. And I do think there's something. There's some work there for us to do, and it sounds maybe a little. I don't know. It's cheesy or something, but I think we need to get out in the woods. I think we need to get in the dirt. I think we need to get lost. I mm-hmm. think we need to go off the trail. I think we need to, you know, reconnect with with the world around us in ways that that makes us feel vulnerable. Back to flat. Back to what you were saying about faith and yeah. um, and hope, and to become more conscious again of our, you know, subsistential existence in the world of uh, of our interconnectedness and our interdependence. And, mm-hmm. and I think there's some work, I think that can do some work yeah, that could translate into policies, could translate into other kinds of, of, of political and communal work.
0: Thank you so much for joining us in the Blue Room many thanks to tim beale you can order his book when time is short finding our way in the anthropocene wherever you order books or connect with him at www.timothybeale that's dot you can also check out my website maryannemckibbendana.net and if you liked this podcast please once again subscribe share rate and review I'm Marianne McKibben-Dana, speaking to you from Reston, Virginia, the ancestral land of the Manahoac people. This podcast was produced and edited by Mel Dana. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll see you next season. Steady on.